1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. We are now at the point, as mentioned last week, where Israel is now going to become a divided nation. This is a major, major problem. The repercussions of this problem actually exist until today. It was one of the major pu first punishments God brought on Israel. You know, he had a lot of cycles of punishment and uh, retribution and retaliation and, and restoration through this cycle of them becoming a nation, conquering the land. We've been through all of that. And now he's dwelling with them. This was a major problem, and it all came into being mainly because of Solomon's lack of moral compass. You've heard that old saying, right? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. The taller they are, the more distance before they hit the ground. Solomon was big and tall, not so much maybe in stature, although he was a handsome and tall man, I'm sure. But what God gave him, as far as wisdom, as far as power, prosperity, he did all those wrong things which we talked about last week. The great and great was his fall. So now we're going to continue this line and see how the kingdom splits. And then we're going to start talking about Elisha, a man sent for such a time as that. And then next week we'll continue in 2 Kings. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, did indeed succeed Solomon as ruler over the nation. But what God promised would happen started to take hold through circumstances he planned to work through Rehoboam. Remember what God said to Solomon. I am going to make sure that you are displaced. But because of the covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, because of God has to have that, not only because it's a covenant, but because of the fact that Jesus Christ was only going to come through the line of David, and you know who has to sit on the throne. So he says, I am going to affect this, but your son, you know, I'm going to make sure that your son still can keep, you know, a line on the throne so that the, the continuing line of David would be on the throne. That's basically what he said. But there was about to be civil war in Israel. First Kings chapter 12 and verse 1. Rehoboam went to Sechem for all of the Israelites, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He wasn't a very nice man. You're going to see he's a pretty evil man. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam. And he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. That heavy yoke was high taxation. By the way, you know what that's like today, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a form of enslavement and control. Uh, so he says, take this heavy yoke from us and we will serve you. I think it's a reasonable request. We want to serve the king. We desire to serve the king, especially in the line of David. But we can't live under this heavy burden of taxation. I think it's a reasonable request. Okay. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me so the people went away. So he's going to take time to think of it. Sounds like a, a, you know, a good thing to do. You know, consider it. Verse 6. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. So remember, the, I mean, remember, I want you to realize there's a better way to say it. These are the consultants. These are the main confidants to the wisest person that ever lived. Do you think that the wisest person, the wisest king that ever lived, lived would surround himself with specially picked consultants in his wisdom? I would. I would think that these are the wisest men in, in his kingdom, his consultants. So he, he looks at these consultants, his father's consultants, and he says, how would you advise me to answer these people? You see, it looks like wisdom's at work, doesn't it? He's going to go back and think about it, going to get... Uh, you know, there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel, especially with wise counsel from his father. You think that's going to be good. And they replied in verse 7, If today you will be a servant to these... Ooh, a king being a servant to their people. What a concept, huh? 
I'd say there's a little bit of wisdom in these men. If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Good advice. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the, the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, his buddies. He had itching ears. He wanted to hear what he wanted to hear. The consultants didn't tell him what he wanted to hear. Anybody, anybody ever know anybody like that? Anybody ever been like that? I point to myself on that one. Uh, but Rehoboam rejected the advice, and, and so he went to his buddies and he asked them, what is your advice? How, would we, how should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? Now, the young men, and, and you, i got to emphasize here, young, right? Young men, buddies, who had grown up with him, isn't it interesting, replied, Tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's wrist. Do you know what that means? That's a fancy way of saying, you thought my father's whip was big. You wait till I show you my cat of nine tails. You think your oppression is heavy now. You wait. I am meaner and tougher and stronger than my father. That's what he's saying here. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. See the attitude problem here? Now, I'm sure he could have thought of this on his own, but he went to some consultants. Yeah, yeah. Three days later, Jer Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. Now, Jeroboam, remember, is coming back from Egypt. This also is setting the stage for a heresy, which is going to cause the civil war. Jeroboam is an evil man. We're going to see that. But now Jeroboam's back because he knew he could make hay of this whole thing as it was going to come down. It was to his political advantage to come back. So three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So he's, not only that, he used the exact dialogue his buddies gave him too. It's like, come on, think for yourself here a little bit. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word of the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. So again, the key here is this is all under God's hand. And it shows us yet again something which I think is most important out of the story is God's character, how he operates. We're going to see more of that even as we get into the story of Elijah. It's amazing. You have to be, the more and more sensitive you are to God, especially in the light of His Word, you'll see that God operates in certain ways most of the time. It's how He applies it. But God will apply leverage, because I said this in, in a sermon I had given many years ago in another church. With God, the end always justifies the means. And that's a good thing. If the end justifies the means with anybody else, that's not so good because people will use any method to achieve their goal, no matter what that goal is. But God is the only one who can do that and actually do it well and, and make it worthwhile. So what we look at God, and when we look at God and say, yeah, you did this and this and this and this, but when you look back on your life, you'll see He achieved in you what He wanted to achieve in you, even if it was painful or if it was pleasurable. I've told you my story in a nutshell, and I look back, and I say I will never want trouble like God can give you trouble sometimes or allow it to happen, but I will never trade it in for the man it made me, for the, for the work it produced. So we see a yet another aspect that God is causing all of this. So why does God cause evil? Well, he doesn't really cause the evil, but he can use it. 
right? And if he allows it, you can say he caused it. So we, that's another branch of, of discussion. But I want you to understand, we look at these notes. I mean, we look at Scripture to really understand God's, as I always say, his heart, his mind, his character, and his point of view, right? Can Remember... No, it's because his father, well, if you look at it, it doesn't, I don't think it gives you a lot of information. I think it's because he was a tyrant, because his father didn't raise him properly, right? Look at Saul. It's learned behavior. It's, it's learned behavior, but I think it's, it's that, and I think also it's human nature gone unchecked. My father's the king. If my father were a king and I was still the person I was before I knew Christ, would I have been a tyrant? Would you have been a tyrant? Would any of you have been a tyrant if you had an opportunity because your father was the king? You know, it's bad enough for people who are our bosses, right? And I've got to have a running with a person who's, who's a, a boss, not my boss, but he's above me. And I've got issues with this guy, which I didn't even cause. Now I've got to deal with them. Is it because of me? No, it really isn't. It's because of his attitude, because he wants what he wants. And he wants it the way he wants it. You've met people like that, and sometimes you and I are like that. But if you put a person in position of power... They'll reflect that power by being X amount of tyrant, right? If you put a position in power of king because his father was a king and you take that same personality, but now he's got more of an opportunity to be a tyrant, you get what you get. It's just a matter of scale. Verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. What they're saying is we're abandoning this whole thing now. We're done with it. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judea, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor. <laughs> He's sending out his heavy guns now. But all Israel stoned him to death. That's a revolt. You better be careful. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So now Rehoboam is in the heart of the thing. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Verse 20. When all the Israelites had heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. You see, I told you Jeroboam had an interest in this. He knew the political intrigue that was coming because he knew that Rehoboam's father Solomon had kicked him out or he left to be into, went to Egypt and he came back because he knew this was his chance. But this is all in God's plan. So he's the catalyst now for the division of Israel. And he's not a very nice man. So it says, they made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. Remember that point. Okay? In my notes, there is a map. And again, I know you can't see it well here, so go to those notes. But here's Israel. And, and, and here's a map of the divided kingdom. To the south, you have, Judea, uh, you have uh, Judah. And to the north and to the east of the Dead Sea, all of this area is what became Israel. So all of the other tribes except Benjamin and Judah went north. You'll also notice that we're going to get into here is that Jeroboam needed to grab the heart of the people. This guy was a true politician, just like Obama did and others. They have to grab your heart. How they do it, is how they do it, but they get most of the people to agree by giving them something that they think they want. Okay? But they first have to sometimes take away something that is dear to you or, or replace it with something else. That's how you usurp somebody's will. So he built two worship centers. He built one in the north in Dan, and he built one in the south in Bethel. 
So you could, you could have two places you could choose to worship, where Judah still had the Temple Mount and the Temple. So that's, that's the lay of the land now as, as the kingdom is becoming divided. When Rehoboam, verse 21, when Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men, to make war against the house of Israel and regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of uh, Solomon. So they're going to they're try to reunify the country. They're going to try to do that. And they're, and they're right in thinking that. But this word of God came to Shammai, the, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. There's no doubt here. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. He makes it clear. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went, went home again as the Lord had ordered. There's no question here. This was not going to be reunited, and there was not going to be war against Israel. So Jeroboam took the opportunity to lead a rebellion, but he was smart enough to realize that, that, that Jerusalem, the religious center of the people's lives, would always be in their hearts. To break this emotional hold, he set up two main idolatrous worship centers, which I showed you in North in, in Dan and Bethel. Finally, the nation of Israel divided. The northern kingdom fell into idolatry and called themselves the House of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Depending on the context, Israel now meant either the entire nation or just the northern kingdom. You choose whatever you're talking about. The capital of the northern kingdom was now, anybody know? Samaria. Now we, we roll forward right to where you know why Jesus went, went to Samaria and, and, a, and a good Jew would never step foot into those half-breeds. And he called her a dog because they were half-breeds. We're going to get into all of how that worked. The southern kingdom remained under Rehoboam and still maintained Jerusalem as its capital and called itself the house of Judah. The house of Judah had absorbed Simeon and Benjamin as well. Okay, so Simeon and Benjamin really combined and then Judah was the separate tribe. Also note that the faithful of all the tribes of the northern kingdom still migrated to the south where worship in Jerusalem was still at least partially politically correct. So even some of them who lived in the house of Israel still migrated to Jerusalem to worship on the prescribed uh, worship times to go to the temple. But that was just a few and eventually that died out. Because you remember the woman at the well? She was unsure of where people were to worship when she was talking directly to Jesus. Remember that? She said, some people say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Some people say up here, you know, we don't know where to worship. You know, but, but when Messiah comes, he'll tell us. And what did Jesus say plainly to her? I who am speaking to you am he. He was never that plain with those Pharisees. But she was actually in search. But because of all of this, she didn't know what to do. He plainly revealed himself to her. Again, showing the character of God. Doesn't he plainly reveal himself to you and me when we're called, when we have no clue? We have no clue about what's the right shoe and what's the left shoe. And God says, let me show you, for I am he. That's interesting. There were huge problems for God's people now. And so, as God does, he raised a special person for such a time as this, Elijah. So let's go <laughs> continue in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 29. We have about, what, five minutes left? Leaving much political intrigue and detail out of our study, and there's a lot to be had here. We pick up at the point where King Ahab sits as king over the northern kingdom. So we're talking now a, a spate of time. 
there's some detail left out of here, and, and that's why I, you know, I don't mind you at all studying on your own, reading some of the things that I have to leave out due to time and brevity, because with, this is an overview of the Bible. But by no means, because I leave something out, does it diminish its importance. Okay? So just letting you know that. As a matter of fact, it says that in my notes as an important reminder, just in case you may forget that. 1 Kings chapter 16 and 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. So now this is the northern kingdom. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. So you see some time is starting to pass here. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So that's a big qualifier right here who this guy is. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, who, by the way, is going to have a major conflict with Elijah at some point soon. We'll get there. Daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Hmm. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Didn't you say that? It's pretty important. Now, Elisha the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. I have a little map in my notes also that show you where that is. It's a very small map of Israel. Here's the Dead Sea of the south and the Sea of Galilee in the north. And Samaria is right by the, where the Jordan River connects the two toward the northern area. And Tishbe is right east of the Jordan River. The Kerith Ravine is just around here. So uh, I know you can't see it, so you have to check my notes out. But Elisha came from Tishbe and he migrated north to the Kerith Ravine where he now stayed and God was going to take care of him. Yeah. Why do you not speak any That's actually a good question. Yeah. Because I want you to use a magnifying glass when you read my notes. No, it's because it's, sometimes it's the only map I can find. So, and if I expand it, it gets too grainy and you, you can't see it anyway. Yeah, it's a good question. Just want to make it difficult for you, the real answer, but I figured I'd give you that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to postpone class for like three months. We'll have to get our art board and supplies. And 10.33, I think what we're going we're gonna to read through here, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll uh, stop. Actually, I think what we'll do is we'll stop. Now, what I wanted to give you is an idea. We're going to actually talk a lot about Elijah next week. There were eight major miracles that Elijah performed. There were also some minor miracles, and I have them listed in my notes, and you, we'll talk about those next week, and we'll detail them. The story of Elijah stretches between, or it actually links. Remember I told you First and Second Kings were originally one book. So in your Bible, the, the story will stretch between First and Second Kings but it's one storyline. The things I want to leave you with today, and I haven't heard the sermon yet here, there's a lot about Elisha. It's not only his miracles and how God takes care of him, and he also cowers even after all the great things God does for him. So we're going to be talking about, again, the character of God and how he treats us and how we can get depressed even after you know, we've had a mountaintop experience and all those things. Okay, that's, that's standard. But there's more important information, and especially in the book of Malachi. When God's closing out the Old Testament, and there are going to be 430 years of no message from God, no prophet, nothing, before the New Testament. But what does he say? He says, and I will send in those days the prophet Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of the hearts, hearts, boy, that's New England, eh? the hearts of the fathers <laughs> to the sons and the, and the hearts of the sons toward the fathers. You, you've probably heard that. You may have heard it in the sermon this morning. I don't know. But we're also going to talk more deeply into this. 
Who is Elijah? And what was that device that took him away? Because we see that kind of device when Ezekiel sees it coming down, right? We also see it in other places where there seems to be a portable chariot, uh, I'm sorry, a portable throne on top of some kind of technology that God uses sometimes to make his presence seen in these four dimensions of time space. We're going to talk about that. That's very important to understand because these are not visions. These actually are seen. These are devices that God uses. We have to see that. We're also going to talk about the two witnesses. I personally believe it's going to be Elijah and Moses. And the last thing I'll mention here is who was with Jesus and accompanied him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yes. Why? We'll talk about that. That's the most important features of Elisha. The functional features of his of his uh, part in scripture and what this is all about. So hopefully that will dovetail into what we learned from the sermons. Have a great week. <laughs>